0: Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show.
2: Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes, debutantes, nurses, Stenographers and librarians.
1: Gotham City Library, Ms. Gordon Speaker. Lopez Hair Removal, this is Jose.
2: Holy Transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone,
0: Cape Crusaders. It took me three years to track down the jade gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out
1: how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. <laughs>
0: mihi nomen est, Stella, Ed hoc est, Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 220 for April MMXXII. Fulik MDM talem to Rome on the 21st. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Well, by the time you hear this, I will have returned from another sojourn to New York City, this time to see Macbeth starring Daniel Craig and Ruth Negga, which I'm super excited about. But what makes it even better is is that I will be joined by my two dearest friends, one of them, a former beloved Donovan Morgan Grant and Joshua Leppin bertoni So I'm super excited just to hang out with those guys Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And yeah, just taking the city, see this awesome play. I'm actually rereading Macbeth, which I did it maybe a couple of years ago, Tom and I did on required reading. So just reading it again to get ready for that. And then Harold Harry, who's been on the show a couple of times, he's going to be coming up for a day or so and then or down, I guess, since he's in Massachusetts. And then Carolyn professor our my chief Tata correspondent is also going to be stopping by on Sunday. So it's just going to be like an awesome party. And I may see for colored girls who have, I think, what is it, For Colored Girls Who Have Contemplated Suicide When the Rainbow Isn't Enough? I think that's what the full title is. I do, I'm thinking about seeing that, just trying to nail down, trying to get my former student, now friend, Claire, who's up at Columbia, to see it with me. So I might see that Saturday evening. But yeah, I'm just, I'm super excited for it. And it's one of those things that just like grad school gives me, you know, some positivity in my life. Like this has been okay. You know, it's been rough. It's been a rough spring or end of winter, but here's something to look forward to. So I'm just super pumped about it. So I guess to continue on from that, that's some find your joy right there. But to specifically get into the find your joy segment, AKA shags, mac and cheese of comfort and joy. First, let me talk about the Oscars. So Heath Barr, aka Sam Heath, has been on the show twice now. He did... Joker's Last Laugh and Politics in Gotham. He and I, for the past three years now, have done a competition on the Oscars where we predict who will win what. And then whoever guesses the most correct gets to tell the other person what book they have to read. And I've lost two years in a row. The first year it was really poor. And I was like, How did he get so many? And I found out that he was using like websites and their predictions to form his predictions, which I thought was cheating. So I had to read. My name is Asher Love, which was, it was a good book. I mean, I trust him. We have basically the same reading palette. So it, it it could be worse. And then the next year I said, okay, let's, you can't use any internet sources and let's choose what, you know, our heart wants. And he's still one, which is pretty ridiculous, but maybe that speaks to our characters. And so this year it was all out. I was using some of these predictors and there was one that I didn't really use the predictor because best picture, It was like a tie, but also leaning towards power of the dog. And I did not care for power of the dog. (laughs) So I loved Coda. I felt like it really deserved it. I thought it was really good. I know power of the dog. So on principle, I chose Coda and Coda won best picture. And I ended up getting 21 out of 23 correct on my predictions. I think he had like 14 to 16. I can't remember. So I won. I had chosen for him. The first and the original Thrawn book by, I was going to say Chuck Wendig. Why can't I remember who writes the Thrawn books? This is terrible. I was just even making requests in the library. You know what I'm talking about, though. And so I am looking forward to hearing what he has to say. And he posts on Instagram kind of like I do, but he's a bit more... I don't want to say pretentious, but he, he always has like a quote after the book that he has read. And so he had posted something and then I typed a response and said, what about Thrawn? And then he texted me this week with a picture of one of the pages of Thrawn. So he has started. So the Oscars, I was just happy to win that competition, but I'm just super excited and, and happy for Coda. I think that it certainly de- deserved it for sure. I recently rewatched all of Daria. I just had this weird inkling to rewatch it I thought this would be fun I think it came after Clone Wars like you know be fun to to revisit Daria and she's just she's a funny gal and she's really intelligent and I could almost make a Daria's reading list kind of like I did with Gilmore Girls and the Rory Gilmore's reading list because of how many books that she reads as well as that insane English class where every time you see the English class are doing some new book. It's almost like they do a new book or a new play, some new work every week, which I would probably die, but I guess it's it's good for Daria. And there was actually one episode where in that, class, there was a list of works on the board. And I think the lesson was something about moral tales. And I think the assignment was create your own moral tale. And there were a bunch of things that I'd seen like Frankenstein, Huckleberry Finn, like pretty standard stuff. And then on the right side, I'm trying to make out these two that I've never heard of before. And one of them is the Dharma Bums by Jack Kerouac. And the other one is Breakfast of Champions by Kurt Vonnegut. And the Dharma Bums, Bums, I keep doing that. The Dharma Bums is about hiking. So it's still traveling, but hiking. And then Breakfast of Champions apparently is like super controversial and about race and racial relations in America. And so I currently have that one checked out. I just got it on hold, but there's only one Dharma Bums in the library system here. And someone has checked out ridiculous but i'm looking forward to these to reading these two and one of them might pop up in a podcast who knows and that and i just recommend daria i think it's just really funny and how dry and sarcastic she is Uh, i think i would get along well with her and then finally i've been replaying resident evil 2 i've decided to attempt The platinum, I will, hardcore is, well, it's hardcore. It's, yeah, it's just tough. And I feel like overall the setting of it is, and the map, I guess, is more difficult than Resident Evil 3, where Resident Evil 3, I kind of quickly memorized where I needed to go. But Resident Evil 2, I feel like there are more settings and it's just, I mean, especially when you get into the sewer, it's just super maze like and, and, narrowing down what is necessary and what isn't necessary to do in order to get those run times down is just crazy. So I did do Leon A hardcore and I got the trophy and I was going to do B. I don't really need to, but I just thought, Oh, you know, it'd be good practice. And then I'll have to do Claire A and B. And then I have the minimalist. I can't use an herb item and I can't use the item box. And then I have to play fourth survivor, which I watched some footage on that at at a low period, like a, a slow period at work. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's going to be insane. So that might actually be a really tough trophy, but yeah, hardcore is difficult. Ada Wong annoys me. And that whole section is just ridiculous. And that's probably where I have my most difficulty because I get lost in that section on any of the difficulties and then now it's worse because of hardcore and then with the mr x situation and just being like really frenzied i he actually once i finally got past the maze section i just did not use her spy craft quick enough and so i was making the fan go where i have to jump in and he walled me and killed me so then the second time i still wasn't as good with the spy craft just on this one part and he was like literally right behind me and i was like ah and then I jump through the fan, but that's, man, once I get past that section of Ada Wong, I'm like, okay, I can breathe a sigh of relief. Who knows what Sherry section is like on hardcore with Claire, but I feel like probably not as stressful, but anyone chasing me always gets me nervous, but that has been fun. And just replaying R.E. Res- uh, Revelations in the ra 5 got me wanting to do that, and I got a couple costumes so I could see. Right now, I'm playing Leon in the Clay Sheriff, and I'm looking forward to Claire's got a military outfit. She's got the I can't remember what the name is, but it's the the racing outfit because it was originally what the character was going to be called, and then the noir stuff. I'm I'm looking forward to playing that. I think that's it. Find the joy. So, I've been trying to find my joy. (laughs) And, you know, work is work. I I think maybe I won't talk about it in this episode since I kind of let off some stuff in the previous one. So, we'll just try to keep positive here. So, let's just jump into the quickies. And as I said in the previous episode, I think I've understood or found what my rhythm is going to be, where I have a couple quickies and then the main event at least on the, the vintage side is that I will be alternating between back girls, Cassandra Cain's back girls and birds of prey. So last episode was back girl and I'm going to do some birds of prey. So two night wings, and I've actually sent out some tweets to Devin Grayson this morning, because I do have some questions. I, I talked about that relationship and feeling a bit strained between Dick and Babs. And so I had some questions that I'll send her. Haven't gotten anything back yet, but maybe in part two, she will have responded. So we'll see. So, so, Nightwing 78 Super Cop, April 2003 is the cover date. Writer Devin Grayson, penciler Rick Leonardi, inker Jesse Delperdang, colorist Gregory Wright, and digital chameleon. The publisher synopsis says as Nightwing takes on the new tarantula, a familiar face turns up dead in the sewers of Bloodhaven. Meanwhile, the cops of Bloodhaven are becoming increasingly violent. There's a press woman in there, and I'm definitely that press woman who keeps saying magnificent when she sees Nightwing. I recommend just seeing those sections there with the Dick and Babs stuff. So Dick wakes Babs up. I I don't know why she keeps her comms on by her bed, but she does. And he tells her he can't come over that night. He has to find out who this tarantula is. He's going to be following her. And Babs tells him, hey, it's a job for the police. Oh, wait, you know, you are the police. And Dick asks if she is worried or jealous. And later they say that they'll talk about it later once his actual police patrol begins, there's a lot of drama going on in the police station. He calls Babs to apologize and they actually call each other boyfriend and girlfriend, which is really nice. I feel like we don't see that a lot. I almost feel like that might've been the first time they use those sort of bonikers or labels. And she says she's not jealous. You know, he's been best friends with Donna since he was 13 and she knows he respects women, but she is worried about him and how much he's doing, which this has been a theme for a while. And if he keeps it up, He or someone else is going to get hurt, but he doesn't get to hear too much of that conversation because he and his partner actually interrupt an extreme showing of police brutality. So all of that fell on literally deaf ears or no ears. And then in Nightwing 79, No Son of Mine, May 2003, cover date, writer Devin Grayson, penciler Rick Leonardi, and inker Jesse Delberding, colorist Gregory Wright and Digital Chameleon. Nightwing scrambles to find the source of a madness that's gripping the Haven Police Department. But Bluedhaven's finest aren't just lapsing into a murderous mania, they're also exhibiting superhuman strength and speed. Babs and Dick are on a date. I can't really tell what time of day it is. I thought maybe it was breakfast, but I think it actually might be in the evening, but Dick is just super distracted. And then Babs calls for the check, you know, in a passive aggressive way, but honestly I would be disrespected too. And then she leaves. And says something about like just give him all the coffee and and the check too. Later, Dick calls Bruce to ask for information on who backs this muscle energy drink that he's that seems to be doing some strange things to the the, the police. And Bruce asks, you don't see him; he's like in off panel, so you don't see him. He asks if there are problems with Babs, and Dick's like, "Why would you ask that?" And, and Bruce says, "Because you're calling me and not her." And so that was probably one of the best scenes I think that I've seen in a. A long time with bruce even though bruce isn't even there but just a funny scene in this particular book that even bruce who sometimes seems to not really sense that there are troubles or someone might be upset or he might be doing wrong that he's sensing like hey there's something up if you're calling me and not barbara so there you go and we'll see yeah i've got some questions just is there something deeper going on? Is it just because Dick is pulled in all these directions with his different lives or is he avoiding or is he just being a man and not knowing that Babs has these concerns? I don't know. So we'll see what Devin Grayson has to say. So let's move on to the main event where I'm going to be doing Birds of Prey 50, 51 and 52 and if you recall, I don't have digital files of these. So I just have paper copies. So I'll show some images, but it won't be as good. So we'll start with Birds of Prey number 50. Of course, we have a Phil Noto cover. Busman's Holiday is the title, February 2003, cover date. Writer Gilbert Hernandez. And I've actually never heard of this particular person. He did some work on Grip, The Strange World of Man, Volume 1. <laughs> Haven't heard of that. Twilight Children, again, haven't heard of that. Among some other things, you know, I did see Wonder Woman pop up there. Artist Casey Jones, who's apparently taking a break from beating up Foot Clan members and colorist Hi-Fi Design. This comes from the DC Wikia An Explosion Rocks Morgan Wendell Bioscience Research Facilities. A brutish monster is combing the streets, chasing after blonde women. Black Canary appears and starts fighting him. While Black Canary is leading the monster on a chase, Oracle is knocked unconscious by a masked man who breaks into the clock tower. Black Canary uses her canary cry, and after the monster recovers, he holds his hand over her mouth and nose until she passes out and carries her off. Yes, this is, in fact, of Mice and Men. Next up, let's get elemental. Okay, so just to talk about the cover, of course it's Phil Noto. What else could we say? But we do see, I I guess, is this kind of a Carolyn nose? It's like a 50% Carolyn nose. If only because you can tell that Barbara is sitting, but you just can't see her full body. But if we look, we also notice that we don't see the full body tech. We see like 75, maybe 80% of Dinah's body. And then I wonder if, I don't know, About this, uh, the imagery behind it could be the explosion could be kind of pointing to this combination of people within. Oh, well, that's a spoiler for the next episode, I guess, but doesn't really give us anything necessarily of this monster and, and all of that. So beautiful, but maybe doesn't speak much about what's going on. Aspects of this issue read like a jumping on point or new number one, since they actually take time out of the issue to run through Babs and Dinah's history. Actually go through, got some narration bubbles of who Barbara was, who Dinah was. We get to see them separately as well as combined as the birds of prey. So, hey, maybe it's a good hopping on point. I don't know if they solicited like that. I don't know why I wish Carolyn were here, but since when does Dinah actually need encouragement or even info on how to fight a bad guy or when to fight a bad guy? And he is a minion at that. You're okay. Well, Bab says this. You're okay, Dinah. You can take them all easy. And she says, what about the shorter one? He doesn't seem to want to stay down. The shorter one, the shorter one. Blazing energy. Yeah. It's just, yeah, really interesting. And, and And then, I don't even know how Babs necessarily knows who these individual people are. these minions with their masks on anyway, but she seems to have very specific details on them. But hey, new writer, so maybe we'll we'll give some grace. This isn't as strong an intro as we usually see, especially with Chuck Dixon. I think it's I'm going to be unfair here multiple times just comparing writers, new writers when they hop on to Chuck Dixon. I think that's just the way it's going to be the lab explosion and Dyna fighting are two different settings, and it's not clear how Dinah got mixed up in the latter. And the only connective tissue between the two is Babs, who's seen that explosion and like, oh, that's another explosion, da-da-da-da-da. But who are these masked men that Dinah's going after? I don't know. It is at least a little classic, right? Dinah is doing something normal later on. She's just going to go get her hair done and then something weirder villainous happens, but it does seem a little strange that you're at a, beauty salon and then some blonde rushes in saying that she needs to be a brunette immediately and people i know from firsthand experience that that is not a quick process so i just got my hair retouched up for the roots anyways and that was a four and a half hour process it's worse the longer it is i have to say but just yeah just a little weird but it makes sense Dinah's always kind of doing something normal and then something bizarre happens to her so hijinks it's difficult to believe that Babs gets attacked in her own clock tower. Well, first of all, knows she's girl breaks into the clock tower. We know that there are other people who can't break in. I don't, Bruce, Dick, like these people can't break in. This, whoever this guy is, is able to. And then he also knocks her out. And so it's unbelievable not knowing who this guy is. And then later on, kind of knowing who this guy is, it's even more believable. So this is issue 50. This is issue 50 of a strong series that's been going on for a while, right? A fan favorite. Chuck Dixon really built something special here, but it doesn't read as a 50th. It doesn't read as special as I think it should be. In fact, something big, I feel like should have happened to the team or maybe added a new member, not whatever this is, and you know the art—it's not bad, but I think it'll definitely take some getting used to. But yeah, I didn't—I didn't really care for this. I'm going to give this five out of ten die jobs. So let's move on to Birds of Prey fifty-one. Let's get Elemental switching up the covers, which are pretty cool. That makes me nervous. Like, oh no, is my comic damaged? But that's just the way it looks, making it real vintagey, kind of those pulp novels. Energy person, Dinah, who even knows who that is? We'll find out maybe. March 2003 is the cover date and same credits to the, or same creative team, I'll say. And again, the synopsis from the Wikipedia, Java asks Black Canary for help finding Sapphire Stag. Oracle calls Black Canary and tells her that she's OK. In reality, she's being held captive by Killer Moth, the very first criminal she ever sent to jail. Java tells Black Canary how Sapphire and her son were engulfed by some sort of energy, became a single person. Boy, that sounds familiar. Hashtag Shagalicious and Firestorm and all of that and took off into the night. Din- java and canary are talking to simon stagg scientists when the energy bean arrives next sapphire and sun ink killer moth well i guess let's talk about this first uh well i guess i kind of did write the pulp cover energy bean and then i guess this is java (laughs) i feel like this is false advertising because that that facially looks like java but java doesn't wear a business suit really well i guess he does is he in here wearing a business suit maybe i just always think of him as like this big lug. yeah i guess there he is back there as kind of a chauffeur but he just i don't know maybe it's the build because it almost looks like he's got rex mason's body which maybe that was intentional he just should be a bit bigger okay so killer moth woo but it's, it, it could be exciting. But I don't believe he was able to do everything that he's done so far. Break in, take out Barbara. See, doesn't that seem far-fetched? And even more so since he learned this, he says he learned it from Captain Cold and Toyman. And those just don't seem like legitimate news sources or research resources in order to, I don't know, up your baddie game. And what is he wearing? These gloves that go up to his, I don't know, like past his bicep. He reminds me of that weird. I've never played it. Metal Gear Solid. Maybe it was the first one. And it's like this mantis. Is that his name? Just like this crazy guy that you're in this office setting and kind of dancing around. Just weird. Just wear a full suit or something. Anywho, he does have an interesting thought on goofy villains on page 18. So let me get there. He's talking about Batman and just the respect that he garners. Then when around goes, as if the audience wants to see what's intrinsically cool turned goofy. You've seen the movies. They take a crime fighter and his opponent, and what do they do? They goof him up. It's because the filmmakers don't respect us. We're the epitome of cool and they're jealous. Which I thought was interesting and almost, I don't know, meta. But I wonder. I mean, what was coming out at this time that could be true of that? Are they talking about my beloved Batman and Robin? Though this would be, this would have been past that. I think in in two thousand three, yeah, for sure. So I don't know, but <laughs> I guess he felt like he was goofy. He's like reverting back because he was goofy and now he's more serious, but. I like the OG Killer Moth. I don't like whatever this is. It's just very bizarre. mm mm I don't like it. We have a really long flashback, which I am appreciative of the, the coloring style that we use and how they actually sketch out the, the frames of the panels, but... Java's is is getting us up to speed on Sapphire and her son and Sapphire is portrayed almost like a teenager. I mean, if if you just looked at that image there with her blowing a bubble of gum, I feel like that could be Stephanie Brown. (laughs) So it's yeah, it's just very bizarre what's going on there. Now, maybe it's because it is Java's perspective, and we know that Java's in love with her, but what does that mean if he's portraying her in his mindscape as a as a teenager and he's in love with her? Like that kind of seems a bit predatory there. I'm not sure what Dinah was hoping to achieve by talking to this group of men. They don't seem like scientists. They just look like a board. And so I'm not sure how they would actually help with the energy being that they have an issue. Dinah's motorcycle actually comes to her, which if you've been a fan of this show and have listened from the beginning, you shall remember a Batman family issue where she and Robin and, and their motorcycle show up outside of his dorm room, I think, in her house. And yeah, it's kind of crazy. So that was that was great. So this issue seems either campy or cheesy. I mean, just with the writing and bizarre interactions, the flashback being a bit strange, the way Java and Dinah talk to each other, it's just not in line with what we're used to. And I think, you know, Hernandez deserves a fresh or clean slate, right? Tabula rasa. But also I think you do need to... Recognize what you're coming after and kind of go with that a bit, or at least transition. I don't know that I would potentially say it was a good jumping on point for new readers, even though there's an attempt there, I think, with giving short backstory of Babs and Dinah and the Birds of Prey, but it doesn't really give a good look into what Birds of Prey is. This entire arc, I'll just spoil the third one now. Dinah and Babs, you know, they're not together until the very, very end. And that's not. Kind of the heart of what birds of prey is like there should be many interactions where they're together and then there's a mission and babs is with dinah on the mission because she is in on comms with her but that's not what this is at all they're just doing two separate things i'm going to give this five out of ten male gloves that are entirely too long and finally we have birds of prey number 52 reunions And you'd think from this cover, again, a pulp cover, that it would be Babs and Dinah being reunited, but it is not. And is this a partial Carolyn nose? Yeah, about a 50 50 Carolyn nose again. Actually, I guess those are her glasses being flung off. And it can't actually tell from this perspective whether she's sitting or not. Maybe. If you knew Babs, it's like, oh, yeah, I know what to look for. But if you didn't, I wondered if you could actually figure that out on your own. And then of course, Dinah's got the same sort of 80%. uh And it does say Phil Noto. Was this also Phil Noto? It just doesn't. Interesting. It's just a different, different style. Yeah, I guess I can now see, even though I don't see his name, I see that style of Dinah's face. Okay. Oracle attacked. Canary cornered. Will they be reunited? Not so. Okay. Okay. Same creative team, April 2003. And this synopsis came from me because the Wikipedia didn't have it. The man, defiantly saying he is Killer Moth, is head-butted by Babs, who frees herself and traps him. Meanwhile, back at the lab, Dinah reveals that Simon Stagg is inside the energy creature as well, along with Sapphire and her son. And this stuns everyone, including me. The three people inside the energy being mess with each other enough to distract Simon and Dinah gets a couple hits in and now Dinah reveals that Java is actually Rex Mason Dinah explains that the lab explosion killed Java and some of his essence maybe got to Rex and confused him into being Java and then the other three merged Metamorpho battles the energy being and bads. Elsewhere, Tells the fake killer moth, now twag, that she can get him help with his split personalities. Simon scientists shoot at Dinah. Twag releases a toxin inside his containment field and forces Babs to witness his suicide, all the while mentioning they could have been a great team dina sets off a beam separating everyone and making stag a nice guy question mark later dina stops by the clock tower and she gets caught up on what was going on with babs and i guess vice versa they watch the scientists get arrested on tv and both race off for a vacation meanwhile the mason family leaves and stag is messing with the equipment again And we later see Java, either his body or a facsimile, couldn't really tell, with Stag saying there will be a new beginning for all and Rex will come around. And next up, love is in the air. So uh, we're still talking about, you know, we're talking, we could be a great team, Babs, just really weird stuff. And I don't know how or why, but it takes her such a long time to get out of her her own confinement or containment and this guy yeah is certainly unhinged he's you know he's been following her for years but he's this twag guy so I don't know is this a respectful portrayal of split split personalities and mental illness I'm not really sure about that okay so Dinah somehow knows that Simon Stagg is in there I don't know how I don't know how I have many questions on this particular issue and even the characters can't look a butt shot of Dinah. So just had to point your attention to that. So even Dinah cannot explain this madness and later on Rex can't explain it either. They're just like maybe this happened and I'm thinking basically the writer is saying that he has come up with this but he cannot explain why these circumstances have occurred. And on the other side, so let's say that it is just so confusing. Dinah and Rex, they're not scientists. so They're coming up with whatever they have. But someone should be able to explain in the end how all this happened, especially like Simon Stagg should be able to figure all of that out. So I don't really like how you're reading something. You as a reader are very confused and not knowing what's going on. And you're relying on people to it. In the comic to explain it to you, and then they don't because they also don't know what's going on. So that's great. Empathy, and I'm able to connect with them on a very deep level, but also that doesn't help me as a reader. Stag somehow is nice. He wants a team up. I, you know, I think that this is pretty odd. I don't know if this is a character shift for something in the future. Can kind of see him smiling and of a family man it just seems very odd from what i've seen of other simon stag appearances is this a writing choice is this because of the accident and and all he went through i don't know The scientists are somehow to blame but that is not explained either they kind of they seemed mad at simon but how you know the ray and all that who knows i don't know Babs, she is not in a traumatic state at all. And I would be, I would be watching somebody commit suicide right in front of you. And then look, they become that dust right there. I mean, she has a look of like kind of distress, but even you know, she she just says calmly twag. Why did you choose me to witness your suicide? I guess you just want it to matter to someone. Is that really all you're going to say? As an aside, I would just say that I was in the basement level of the hospital just yesterday and I was going to the cardboard compactor with boxes that I had gotten like commodes and things. And as I was getting back to the elevator, there was a man in a suit and then on a rolling bed tray, I don't know, was a a body in a canvas body bag. And that was... That was really affecting that was that's probably like my first dead body, dead human being in a body bag that I've ever witnessed. I I suppose that was at least fortunate for me that it was like a nice little canvas fabric looking thing. So it wasn't like a black body bag, which would have been very uh intense but just the fact that i didn't actually see the body but just i knew exactly what it was and there it is and this man is just kind of casually on his phone texting and i don't know why it was in the bed i feel like he was in the wrong area and i just want to get on the elevator but if i was like that affected by seeing that and she is not as affected by seeing someone die and turn into dust in front of her i feel like that does not make sense So this issue did have some stakes to it. There was a level of danger. It wasn't as campy as 51 in particular, but I lost my way through it. I don't know what the point of it was or of this whole story, really, especially the Barbara sections. I mean, why have that guy there claiming that he's killer moth wanting to team up and and. Wants respect, but wants to be with the person who put him away in the first place. And then actually, he's not killer moth and now he kills himself. What was the point of all that? I don't know. The best part was the end with Dinah and Babs being together and catching up. I think that was the only time it felt like a legitimate birds of prey story. And what was it? Just one page? It, re- it literally was. It was one page which is a lot, you know, like all this stuff going on. Did she? Why does Barbara have? Oh, OK. She put a bandaid on these two lines that she got right there as if she were bloodied. I don't know. Her head hurts from the head, but interesting. Anywho, just a lot of criticism. So that's yeah, that was fun. And then, hey, look, we're going to do some some fun vacationing. Yeah. As for Black Canary, I'm still looking for that vacation. And I think you need to join me. But I'm needed here. My equipment ever hear of a laptop, which is funny coming from Dinah, because remember that one issue where at the very beginning, Chuck had Dinah like really freaking out, like, what is it? What is it? And then you find out it like pans back and it's just a computer. So Anyways, that was the best part. And it was one page out of a what a 66-page story or something like that. So I'm going to give this five out of ten gaseous suicides. And the whole, yeah, the whole arc was was a five out of ten. Unfortunately, sorry, Mr. Hernandez. Unfortunately, I've got three more issues left with this guy. And then it's it's Gil Simone. But he's gonna have to impress me in his next arc for sure. Okay, now I've got some listener emails. Some of them are YouTube comments, which I'll mention. Mail time. Mail
1: time. Mail here. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail.
0: So first from Ian Prime, a.k.a. Ian Miller. He says, nice. Oh, this is on episode 219. Nice. Glad that Batgirl seems to be back on track. I find that I enjoy the series a lot more upon rereads than my first reading, especially because of all the moments between the characters, Ian Prime and then a smiley face emoticon. Next, we have uh, a couple from Hornacek who warned me about the black screen, which I'm sorry when, when these happen and I'm doing screen share I thought like okay this new laptop I won't do that but maybe I just need to have the screen share like selected and my cursor over there. It's just hard because of the notes and everything. So I wish I could tell that I can't see that screen. That's the positive thing about having, or the pro, I should say, of having a compatriot with me is that, hey, I can't see your screen, but I don't have that. So I do apologize. And thank you to Hornacek for, or Hornacek, but or Hornacek to letting me know, because that is always helpful. Uh, and then Hornacek comes back and says, when you were talking about the alpha story, it sounded familiar. An amnesiac super spy who may turn out to be a killer. <gasps> Very Jason Bourne-ish. And the fact that it's cover dated 2003 when the first Matt Damon Bourne movie came out in the summer of 2002 makes me think that movie could have inspired this character and story. And I thought that was great insight and I hadn't thought of it. And that that's absolutely probably correct. So thank you for that. And then Hornacek, told me that the rest of my screen shares worked for part two. So I guess, I I don't know. I just need to, to figure that out. Also comes back and says... The book came out in 1980. I think there had been another movie adaptation of it years ago, but the Matt Damon one is the now is now the version everyone thinks of when someone mentions this book. Oh, okay. The Born Identity, I guess, or whichever one was the first one, came out in 1980. And so everyone thinks of Matt Damon. It was a surprise hit of that summer. So it wouldn't surprise me that this DC writer saw it and thought, hmm, these are some good ideas. Yeah. So and I can totally get that. I think, you know, some blockbusters and basing things off of films really work. But that story was just super bizarre. And I wanted, I guess, more backstory on Alpha and, and the Cain connection and how people knew that there was a Cain connection and why not go to Cain. So we'll see if he pops up again since we know that he is not dead. And then my Earth 2 BFF Shana wrote in. And said, "Hi, Stella. I liked backrolls number four a little more than the last issues. I enjoyed all the cast Steph moments, and I hope this is a portent of what is to come. I still think there were too many narration boxes, and I think what I realize I'd prefer is if these were inner monologue boxes instead. I totally agree, and just wait, yeah, until issue five. If this is in fact an arc focused on Stephanie, I think having some of Steph's inner thoughts might really help ground the story in her perspective. The quote Donovan pointed out about Steph's musings about an." normal life really struck me as something I'd like more of maybe as inner dialogue and not just inner dialogue for Steph, but in future issues for Cass and Babs too. The problem I'm having at this point is that I feel as if the narrator has now become their own separate character, one that risks outshining our three heroines at the very least, the narrator is taking panel time away from them, though I suppose if this is a book meant for a younger audience, then extra narration might be necessary. However, I'd still argue narration coming from at least one of our leading ladies is better than an unrelated third person narrator. Yeah. And if it's a younger audience, do you think it's really getting to them You know, t- cognitively? And they realize, you know, a lot of it is tongue in cheek and, oh, these are people like helping us out and they're, you know, clearly they're writers adding their own commentary Are they just like, what's going on? I don't understand why they're saying this. I don't know. I guess maybe give other readers uh, more credit me, me. Regardless, I'm very curious to see how this arc wraps up and what it might set up in future issues. I like Spellbinder as a villain in general, so it will be interesting to see what is done with him going forward. To give you a few examples of what I was referring to in my last email about reboots, I consider some of the Disney remakes ah, okay, to fall into this category. I think Beauty and the Beast in particular is a good example of where I think the original spirit of the characters and story got lost in the attempt to address criticisms of the original. And I want to be clear, I, in no way, mean that remakes shouldn't ever address the problems of their past incarnations or can't be improved by doing so. But I think there has to be a balance because without an engaging story, you don't have a good vehicle to deliver your message with. A creator also risks alienating a sect of fans that has strong attachment to the past incarnation if they don't pay a certain respect to the original. Of course, this leads to a much larger, more philosophical question about art. Who owns it, and what constitutes a valid criticism? None of which I plan on getting in here. <laughs> yeah, I, that that certainly is probably its own podcast. I think we could talk about, but you're, yeah, that is a, a really good example. And I just covered in my dear reader episode the Jane Eyre. Well, I did a side by side of the 1944 version, the 2011 version, and I picked up in 2011 this very particular line. But it was it was if only we could focus on it more, but where Rochester, after the the reveal of Bertha, says something like, you know, I couldn't just, it, it was better than a madhouse. Have you ever been to one? It's terrible. So at least where she was now is better. And so I thought, oh, well, they're trying to explain or make a bit better or more palatable what's going on to Bertha and what he's done. But still, yeah. So I, I see what you're saying. My point in my last email about Stephanie was simply that I had seen some discussion online about her being a weak link and a pretender, though my experience of how I have read her in past comics says otherwise. I agree. There are many reasons why Clunan and Conrad might have chosen to write her as a, quote, weak link in the last couple issues, but I have to wonder if they were informed by some of these conversations. Ugh. I know it is early days of Batgirls, but are you interested in interviewing Cloonan and Conrad at some point? I am. I feel like it's more difficult now than it was a couple of years ago to get interviews with, you know, to go through PR and, and all of that and get interviews with creative teams. But I do really want to. I think it would be really interesting to hear more of their perspectives with these characters and what they want to explore with them. I'm sorry to hear things have been hard for you lately, and I hope they start to get better soon. Thank you so much. Take care, Sheena, And thank you for writing in. Yeah, I definitely do want to talk to them probably after this you know first arc i think would be good to to get that down there and just get a sense of where they're going and I do want to ask some of these questions, like the narration boxes, though you know you have to be cautious and be like, OK, you know you have to approach that <laughs> very cautiously so that it's not you know a criticism and then they're you they feel on the defensive and totally yeah i I'm with you one hundred percent, I think, in all you're saying in your email and with the staff situation, and that's the the power for good and for ill of fandom where we do, we can influence, but then sometimes it's like a really negative influence. You know, Back Rolls is an example of a positive influence where finally it's happened. We were wanting this for so long. Negative influence is people hating on uh, Rose from Star Wars Episode 8 and then her character just getting trashed basically in Episode 9. So things like that and man, where, 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 how, how do we even balance it? Who is right and who is wrong? The ethics and the morals of, of all that. I don't know. There was an example of something that I feel like I was a part of and, and I was super like, please just don't do this. And, ah, oh, I wish I, well, one thing that I really don't like is the, the redesign of Peter Parker and the Marvel Spider-Man for the, the PlayStation I despise that and you know people could who love Tom Holland as Spider-Man they're probably all excited but you know is am I on the right side of that I don't know <laughs> and I don't need to bully anybody and say this is awful and yeah, I think just people take it too far. I think you need to be respectful. But when are you right? When are you wrong? I don't know. But in that case, I I don't be, if you're saying, oh, Stephanie's is the weak link. Are you right or are you wrong? What are you reading that says that if you're reading vintage stuff, I could say I wouldn't say that she's a weak link, but she's certainly the one that ha- needs the most growth compared to the other characters. But then is that all you had read and you hadn't read other stuff? So I, I also question fandom and their it seems like they know what's going on but a lot of them don't do their research or they only have like one point in time or one resource that they're looking at and and it's just unfair to the character so totally with you because uh, you know i was looking at trying to catch up Mm -hmm. on detective comics and i'm like okay well steph is completely different over here what's going on but i will say there are some positive things that go on in issue five by chanceville since that's the next part so Mm-mm-mm. Okay. Thank you for writing in. Remember, you can always send in feedback. Uh, I, I get those pings on the YouTube videos. And I don't think I get any comments anymore on the website, which is fine. Or you can email me at backgirloracle at gmail.com. And finally, we or not finally, but yeah, I'm I'm going to stop this part. And... <laughs> take a break. When I come back, I'm going to be covering some modern quickies, including probably Nightwing. I haven't read everything yet. That's going to be coming out. I'll be recording that and editing it really quick before my New York City trip. So definitely Nightwing, I know. And I'll definitely be also doing a full review of Batgirls number five. And now, Zias' Radio Hour featuring Sugar Tooth by Brandy Carlisle. See you guys soon.
3: Known for breaking the rules when he arrived in the second year of my high school. He wasn't so much of a twist of fate as a short turn up from a southern state. He was born with a sweet tooth he couldn't be, always trying to find himself something sweet. All that he found was the trouble and the me, or maybe trouble just found him. It was hard to hide that his heart had scars He would stay up late talking to the stars People tried to blame him for making bad choices when he was only listening to the voices And searching for some kind of deeper truth Between the lines and the babble and living proof There's no point now to judge him in vain If you haven't been there a gun in his hand and a quiet head, his broken heart now is finally gone, but I know that he had to hurt for too long, to think he had fought it all on his own, just to lose the battle and die alone, after so many years of feeling the loss.
0: So first of all, I wanted to go through some Devin Grayson tweets. As I suspected after I recorded, she responded. She is a lovely person. Just the fact that she answers my questions, I think is really great and is really thorough in her answers. So first of all, I'll say what my tweets were and my specific question, and then I will read her response. So I said, good morning. I've just read Nightwing 78 to 79 in prep for my next episode, and I had a question about the current state of Dick and Babs' relationship. Is this strain awkwardness between them on account of Dick's focus being elsewhere, Nightwing and the BPD, and Babs' concern that he's taking on too much? Or is there something deeper going on in these issues? It seems like... He he's avoiding any serious conversations with her. But then again, maybe he's just a guy and honestly doesn't see what he's doing or doesn't get Babs's feelings. I appreciate your time and look forward to hearing your insider knowledge. And she responds, I wrote the issues you mentioned over 25 years ago, so they're much fresher in your mind than mine, but here's my attempt to answer your questions about Babs and Dick. For me, the central hurdle in Dick and Babs's relationship was always how much history they have together, particularly as it relates to how well she knows him. She loves him deeply. They have fantastic chemistry and she knows how he's honorable and trustworthy and capable of true intimacy. But she also knows all of his hangups and flaws and perhaps most saliently here knows that she knows him somewhat better than he knows himself. So yes, she's worried. She knows how he operates. She knows he's working too hard and won't stop until he crashes she knows that he already considers himself responsible for saving tarantula whatever that will end up meaning and she knows that given his history the chance that that venture will end up including some kind of emotional and or physical entanglement is high she knows that whatever he's doing his focus is on that thing 100 which sometimes includes being with her and then sometimes doesn't And she knows that she's become literally the voice in his head. There aren't many models for that kind of a relationship. So she's not yet 100% sure that that role so critical to his work will prove compatible with being his S.O. Babs is so, so smart. Even when her heart's involved, there's no way she isn't thinking about the relationship analytically as well as emotionally. Emotionally, in the period you're citing, she feels very close to him. But analytically, she's worried about giving her whole heart over to someone who has already literally pledged his life to, well, that man. (laughs) Batman and his eternal fight for justice. Essentially, they're both soldiers. The things she most admires about him, his commitment and discipline and dedication to the cause, are the same things that will make it hard for her to ever be his number one priority. And sometimes she feels like, since she's also a soldier in that same army, it should be totally possible to share a life with him. But other times she feels like she can see all the ways in which she's obviously not ready to settle down and be a life partner to someone So she doesn't want to fall any more deeply for him than she already has. From Dick's point of view, the fact that he loves her and she loves him should be enough. They can figure everything else out on the go, and he is always on the go. He knows he'll do anything for her and assumes she'll always tell him exactly what she needs. But he's unaware at this point in his life of how well he compartmentalizes something that will soon be illustrated in his relationship with Catalina. He was taught to focus with laser like intensity on whatever it is he's doing in any given moment and doesn't yet understand what it feels like to be the person that passion has been focused on and then have it predictably disappear for unpredictable lengths of time. Babs, on the other hand, is entirely aware of that dynamic. As I recall, she gets a chance to explain more of her thoughts a little further into the story, but I hope this helps in the meantime, which it certainly does. So thank you, Devin Grayson, for all that insight. And it's interesting how well. I think what you said and explained right there really captures what's going on in the current Nightwing, just with a couple panels of Wally and Dick talking about that relationship between Dick and Bab. So it's ever relevant, I suppose. But yeah, really interesting, and I'll look forward to seeing all that go. And and I think that just explains some of the the art and and the facial representations that you see with babs and then just that frustration and these two kind of passing ships in the night as they're they're working and, and trying to have conversations so There you go. So thank you. And I'm sure I'll continue to tweet out to her as I have questions as we loom ever closer to that one particular situation, though. I don't know, because if you recall, when I tweeted her last time, it was was clear how regretful she is of that. So I don't know if I necessarily want to bring that up again, but we shall see. The other thing I wanted to say just before I start in on the modern stuff is I woke myself up in a panic from a nap I was taking over the weekend after I had recorded part one about twag. And I was very fearful that I had been saying these comments about his dress. And I wondered, oh, my gosh, what if they were trying to present twag as a queer man and I have made fun of of what or or really was critical on what he was wearing. So if that is the case in the context, then I do I take it back. We do not have the same fashion senses, but Twag can wear whatever he wants to wear. If the context is that he is, in fact, a villainous person, and that is what he chose to wear. That is certainly his choice still. I disagree with it. And I think that he should have been covered in head to toe in black rather than those gloves that go nearly all the way to the top of his arms and don't. So I apologize if I said anything offensive, which I may have. just had this thought. I feel like there's a character I remember that kind of came to me that wore those long gloves was definitely a man. I feel like he had maybe silverish hair, silver gray hair, and then wore like these really interesting kind of sixty style big glasses, or I'm thinking of something else, but I just thought, oh no, what if I've, I've real messed up. So I shall be more cautious in the future when talking about menswear for sure, but it's also 2003. So I feel like maybe they it, the chances are they most likely were not making Twag a queer gentleman. But, and then randomly, because I was looking up Twag just to see if there was any, any insight and on the DC Wikia, they actually have his real name, and I thought, when was that revealed? But it also said there were three appearances of him and two of them, which is false because of what they. I've already seen him thrice. But the other two appearances that they show him, I haven't gotten to yet, so maybe we'll see him again. But randomly, there was a thing that said, you know, what? what's the definition of twag? But twag is spelled capital T, capital W, A, G. And apparently it's a semi-mythical female with loose morals who has sexual relations with men while disregarding any emotional or practical consequences on both sides, often in the pursuit of direct or indirect monetary benefit. Semi-mythical. I, I, I mean, I feel like those people actually exist. Loose morals. I don't know. I could almost say like Rebecca from Rebecca De Winter. From Rebecca, could kind of be a twag. I don't know. I. I. It was just a very bizarre, and it's twag. Anyways, okay, we'll move on. (laughs) So I do have a couple comics that I'm going to go through. One quickie, Batman Urban Legends number 14. So the reason why I'm doing this, which first of all, I was looking at this and I thought, gee whiz, Batman just destroyed that man's face. But the reason why I'm looking at Urban Legends 14 is because Birds of Prey, Birds of Prey. Memory Lane part one of three, Che Grayson, which sounds like an amazing name and an amazing person. And I forgot before this show to see what the gender is of that person, but I shall do it next time. Shay Grayson related to Dick Grayson, maybe writer Serge Acuna, isn't it? Maybe not. There's no little yeah. Acuna artist, Ivan Plasencia colors and Josh Reed letters. And so as I flip here, I will say that the publisher synopsis just says a new birds of prey led by lady Shiva and Katana. So I don't want to get too much into this, but the point that I wanted to bring up actually a couple points, number one, urban legends in a way seems like a good way to trial a pilot. They have these, they have multiple stories. So very much harkens back to detective comics of old, where there were different stories, but Various stories, they're shorter, 10 or 12 pages, multiple parts. And then, oh, if it's popular, if the story works well, bring it out and have its own book. The fact that there are people named Roe is really interesting, just because we have somebody else, Harper, of course, but... I couldn't remember then if Harper Rowe was actually R-O-W. It's been a while since I've seen her name in print. And you know how you kind of forget how a word is spelled when you're seeing other words. So this is, it's not the best story. I think what intrigued me was more the character lineup than the story itself. Because more tech stuff, which we've got seer going on. So it just seems like an overload of tech theory tech villainy that kind of stuff but it's more about the lineup of this birds of prey the fact that we have these two women i guess co-leading shiva and katana clearly it's not the best i mean they're already fighting and then this other girl i think her name is ghost pops up which I, someone from the audience, you guys will have to tell me who this ghost person is and where she has popped up prior because it seems like people know of her and I should as well, but I don't. And then I do know the other girl, but I can't remember. Is her name Molly? I know it's from the Batman storyline. Yeah. Miracle Molly is her full name. So really interesting. And I'm seeing everyone has their own motivation for being a part of this group. As Ghost says, you've got a tech villain, a stoic outsider with a magic sword and me. I'm trying to think if, if there is anything else, but they each come through and there is something I wanted to bring up that. There we go. Shiva says, we don't have to agree with each other ideologically to get the job done. And so clearly, everyone's coming to the table for different reasons. Everyone has their own abilities. So that feels very Birds of Prey-ish. What doesn't feel Birds of Prey-ish, classic Birds of Prey, I should say, is the fact that they are not necessarily friendly with each other. I think Miracle Molly might be able to be friendly with anyone, it seems like, and she might like the conflict. Shiva and Katana are never going to get along. And then Ghost, I think, is just not necessarily going to trust everyone, but is probably someone that might warm up as the team goes along. So what this Birds of Prey feels like is the Birds of Prey, that started in the new 52, which I know not many people liked. I actually grew really to like it more so in the first arc. And Katana a part of that, was a part of that original team, I believe. If I'm remembering Katana and Backroll and Poison Ivy and thorn that was not her name. I can't remember what her name is, but which I still remember there are some storylines that were not picked up and finished from the first run by Dwayne Swarzynski. So Katana, this is old hat for her to be in a, in it. I don't know if they're anti-heroic team necessarily, or a group of these really interesting on the line of good and bad or maybe nondescript and working for the good of Gotham maybe so that makes sense and then there's this other situation that they bring up reminiscing stealing memories like people so the whole tech thing there's a program that sorts through your memories and you can relive them in real life which sounds very black mirror esque and I guess they're stealing memories and things like that. And it just sounds, even someone said the word reminiscing. And I thought, okay, we just had a film starring Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson on, I feel like it was called reminisce, reminiscing or something like that. So it's just... I'm more interested in the team to see how that forms rather than the story, which just seems like a bunch of borrowed parts from other things that we've seen, as well as just more technology, which I guess that's just the price you pay living in our current world and current society. So reliant on technology, but you know, we've got seer going on. So can we resolve that before we get back to it? But let's move on. Let us move on to Nightwing. 91, which I literally read 20 minutes ago. (laughs) It's very early in the morning. Writer Tom Taylor, artist Geraldo, Geraldo Borges, and colorist Adriano Lucas. And the publisher's synopsis says trying to save a city that's even more beyond saving than Gotham is no small task. And even someone like Nightwing needs a day off to relax with his best friend and to recharge, but when your best friend is Wally West, a.k.a. The Flash, a recharge might not end up being so relaxing. So just quickly, it it really is. BFFs, some shipping, Donovan. I was talking with him on the phone yesterday and he said, is it, is it me or is Tom too? We're shipping them. And it, he was giving me some extreme examples. and I thought, well, that does sound like shipping, but I don't necessarily see that here. But with Wally beating up on KG Beast and saying like, you know, I don't hold a grudge with this time. I will. You tried to murder my friend. And that he, uh, you almost took away one of the greatest heroes and one of the best people I know. So every time you step out of line from now on, I will be there to stop you. And I've got the time. So I guess I could see some of that. But I think, you know, they're just they're just BFFs, you know, but we could ship them together. I don't slash thick ship them together. I don't think that there's any romance there, but I think Tom Taylor is just a fanboy, I think. and And I think that is lovely. It's interesting how KG Beast is made out to be a bit like an episode or also i think tom taylor does a really fun job of looking at what comic critiques there might be from fans like why wouldn't you do this and then spins that and, and has a fun time with it like in the previous issue with uh, women in refrigerators but the fact that you know there's a bomb that's about to go off dick easily finds it because there's gps um he removes the mask of kg Beast to unlock the phone that kind of stuff which is pretty funny Here Babs is now at the home of Wally West and Linda Park, so a bit like a double date, but not necessarily. And she checks in on him, which I thought was great, because, of course, KG Beast and having that Rick Grayson, which we don't like to think about, do we? And, uh, yeah, just plain Oracle, but... It's it's fun to have her in this setting with Wally also there. And again, we've seen it. We've seen it in the past where she uses as a go between sometimes. So to bring that current times, modern comics is a lot of fun. So they're going to Costa Rica. And then uh, the dog, the kids, since Haley is there, the kids want a dog. And Wally... <laughs> Knows that he's probably going to be convinced or manipulated into getting something. And he says, I want you to know that if they talk me into so much as a goldfish, it's on you. And then a funny scene here while I ask him, piggyback or cradle? And Dick says, You've traveled into the future. You've met hundreds of flashes. Do none of your descendants ever come up with a better way to carry someone? And the answer is no, because, but he does choose piggyback. So at least we know what his preference is. Let's see here. They have some really interesting conversations just about. About heroing life and how does Wally do it? Where he leaves the house with his wife and children, and he said, I check in on them all the time. And he actually checked in on Dick every hour for or so for weeks since you announced what, what you were doing. And Dick says, That's stalkerish. Oh, definitely stalkerish. But uh, Appreciated as well, and then yeah. So they find this lady, uh, well this this head of this huge assassin organization, and I really like her. So Wally's taken out of commission by a force field, and so now it's Dick and this woman here, and which makes sense since it's his comic. And I really like her design. I think it's a really cool villain design and a really intense fight scene. She fights dirty, but she fights well. And again, so she's got a knife that has poison. And again, you know, one of those things like, oh, my gosh, is he now going to die? But hey, it's no Tom Taylor knows. And where is it here? Flash and Mr. Terrific built this suit to be stab proof, and he uses that for some close combat. This is a great scene where Flash is unconscious. He wakes up and he says, when I was unconscious, I think I was thinking and it's not easy balancing it, worrying I won't come home. But this is what we do. I know you've lost people and you're worried about losing more, but you shouldn't let that stop you and Babs from being a thing. And he says, Dick says, Babs and I, is complicated, which I feel like isn't really in this book, but I don't know. Wally says it isn't at all. I don't know how such great detectives can be so clueless. You already have a puppy and the same threat of death hanging over you. That's a shared life right there, which is exactly what Devin Grayson was talking about. You've both come through a lot of messy, painful stuff, and you both deserve to be happy. So I thought that was really a great conversation. And then Dick uses that network to basically destroy itself. So he sets people up all over the world and gets them out in the open and then the, the heroes basically come. You see a montage of different heroes coming and destroying those operations. And then Shiva pops up here and says to Blue Taven as a courtesy, which is really interesting, I don't know what their relationship is like. Perhaps I've seen it, but I don't know. She says that basically that network is destroyed. No one's going to touch this job. So if you want Dick Grayson, you've got to do it yourself, which is really interesting. And there was one thing. So over 20 top assassins are in custody. One was found dead with his heart removed. And I wondered what hero would, well, hero would do that. So basically Dick Grayson got somebody killed. So just think about that. Oh my goodness. Should he be fired Donovan? (laughs) He inadvertently got somebody killed. Okay. So that is Nightwing number 91. And now we are here for the main event, which is of course Batgirls number five. One Way or Another Part 5. Writers Becky Clunan and Michael W. Conrad. Artist George Corona. Colorist Sarah Stern. Bondo and the backrolls are being chased through the hill by a van and the Saints. Oracle grabs their location and soon joins them as Cass does some fast and furious, tricky maneuvers and heads. Head on for the van. Steph leaps onto the roof of the van and immediately needs assistance. A grapple gun from Cass stops the van somehow and Babs catches Steph midair. Outside of their vehicles, Beckerl's the back girls, I guess, take down the Saints and Babs hacks Fido. Babs tells them they have been played and gives them evidence that Simon Saint is dead and Seer has been behind it right before telling them the police are on their way. Fido comes home with Babs and the Jig is up with Bondo, but hey, Babs already knew and are you really that surprised? On their return, Steph receives a transmission from Tudor, who has seemingly escaped Dante and is planning something big for the city. Babs uses Fido to track the transmission down within some blocks and decrypts his biography tutor is cody klein with a k which is a story point who graduated from gotham academy studied art at gotham u was busted for some minor infractions involving graffiti and trespassing and suffered a psychotic break during one of scarecrow's attacks landing him in arkham even with his treatments he grew unstable Looks like the transmission leads the Batgirls to Arkham as well. As all the inmates have been moved to the tower, according to Detective Comics 1047 with an editor's note, the girls can sneak around Arkham and look at the files without being disturbed. They find the file on Klein and discover that Dante had been involved in his treatment. At the same time as they're reading this, Oracle is going to check on Dante, even though the girls are warning her to be careful. And for good reason, as Spellbinder knocks Babs out, Soon after her arrival. And I mean, the door was open. You'd think you'd be suspicious. Meanwhile, at Arkham, Steph faces off against an upgraded tutor. And Cass, after having heard a noise, goes up to the roof only to find a brainwashed Grace (laughs) O'Halloran. And Cass looks down upon a mass of brainwashed citizens and readies to take them all out on her own. Next, draw me like one of your dead girls, which is really quite interesting. Okay, so looking at this cover, we have a hashtag Carol and O situation right here because Babs, a bust, I would say, because it's more than a floating head, but you do have the full-on Steph and Cass body. So technically, yes. It is interesting design, and I'm glad that Barbara is actually on the cover since that's been one of my complaints, and it looks like she's in Oracle mode because she has a... Headset on. And then the fact that it looks like she's in the grip of Spellbinder's hand. So interesting, but hashtag Carolyn knows. (laughs) So my first comment actually goes back to Shana's email, right? About this intrusive narrator. And it seems like we're back. I think four was it was either me and in whatever mind state I was in. Or it just wasn't as bad, but this did seem really intrusive. And I challenge you all to read one of these issues without reading the Purple Narration or author commentary and tell me if you've lost something, because I really don't think that you could. But one thing it might do, which is something I have a criticism about in regards to DC Comics in general, is that it does give you a somewhat sum- summary or catches you up from from previously. Because Marvel is really good about that, where the first page with the credits will actually show like who that person is. Like Spider-Woman is, da-da-da-da-da, previously on Spider-Woman, da-da-da-da-da. And DC Comics never does that, which... If you're reading it pretty successively, it it doesn't matter. But sometimes with some stories, especially if it takes place, it would be really good to have some of those little summary pages. So this van that is chasing the girls, uh, we are told that it's white. But for those watching this video, I ask you if that looks like a white van. And yes, it's nighttime, but it looks kind of tan to me. And uh, the narration box tells us that. So the author commentary was a bit off. I am surprised that a van like this can keep up with Bondo. Bondo seems pretty souped up. Maybe that's just my imagining and my extreme love for the Fast and Furious franchise. But I don't see how those two could really or, you know, go on a race, a head-to-head race. I do love this entrance of Barbara. I think it's really cool. She's a bat girl in this particular instance. It's on a classic bike, though that bike does suspiciously have a Hawkeye logo on it. But I also thought that the jig, oh, no, is the jig up with, with Bondo? Is she going to be like, hey, where are those mopeds that I thought you had? But you really think Babs didn't know, which is great. That's actually a comment made by all of them at the end, if I can find it. Oh, yeah, Babs says, sick ride, by the way. And Seth says, "Um, about the car we meant to tell you. And she said, well, you really think I didn't know? So very true. So within this action sequence, I wondered what the whole point was of Steph leaping onto the van since immediately she needed help, (laughs) you know, somehow. So it's not like she was about to break into the van from the top or there weren't any bad guys up there. She's knocking people around. So I don't understand what the point of that was. and. I suppose it makes her seem careless. So there's that again. It's interesting how much difficulty the Saints gave the back rolls at the beginning of this whole run. They've been ever present the past few issues, albeit not interacting with them. They've been on the lookout, right? There's always been this sort of suspenseful presence of them. And now they're relegated to an in medias race opening to this issue. And I would say for the most part taken out rather easily. Yes, they have. I mean, the variable of course, or the difference between is that Barbara Gordon is there So we could talk about, well, look, there's the skill, Barbara, right? She uses her tech to knock out Fido. and Now we have, I guess, what, 4v3? Because I think they're originally 5. So the odds are a bit better. And she just has more skill or experience. So maybe that's the change. Or it's... I don't know, we're getting used to them, but it just seems strange with how difficult it was in the beginning. And now it's like, well, it's still somewhat difficult, but we're able to take care of them and mop it up. So yeah, I don't know. With Babs actually talking to the leader there and showing the drive, I do wonder where exactly she's putting the drive or giving that to them for the saints to see the evidence because they're about to be picked up by the police. And it's not like the police are going to not give them a phone call, but give them a data drive so they can look at this. So I don't know about that. It's an interesting idea, something that I thought about here Especially in this section, the fact that they have a common enemy now, right? They were manipulated by Seer. Babs and the girls have been against Seer for a while now. So could the Saints team up against Seer? And I think even our narration boxes tell us that we've not seen the last of the Saints. Yeah. See, so think this is the last we've seen the saints think again, but more on that later. So we'll see. And it, again, that's also, is that a spoiler? <laughs> Thank you for telling us that we're not done with them. Adopting Fido five. And he speaks in text lingo. RF is four capital R F. And then you've got the. I guess the greater than or less than sign, depending on what you're doing there, greater than three and exclamation point, which I thought was interesting. But adopting it, it's cute, but is this smart or unwise given Barbara's history with technology being corrupted, right? Her own spine and body against her, the evil oracle of the past, or does that history even exist? Did I put myself through pain for nothing? Who knows? I think uh, at the beginning, the cold opening, as I like to call it, thinking about Chuck Dixon's run, thinking about James Bond runs, things like that, or films, I almost would have liked a different villain, someone who was easily wrapped up rather than the saint's. And just have the Saints still out there and have the bad girls interact with them in another way. And then maybe them come together with Seer rather than this, I think. Just kind of relegating them and making it seem easier than I think it should have been given the threat level at the beginning of this run. So apparently, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find this, but the joke is still going that Babs has a former BF and that happens to be Dante, but he's not my boyfriend. Oh yeah, it's Tudor. He must've escaped your old boyfriend's house. And then, and for the record, Charles Dante and I were never official. So here's another running joke. We've got a couple of running jokes. We've got that one. We've got the fact that the neighbor is a serial killer and no one's believing Steph. I guess are those the only two running jokes we have so far? Maybe, I think so. If we look down on this page, uh, you see, actually, the serial killer neighbor doing something bizarre with a hand. Maybe he's a mannequin. I don't know. But he's doing something weird. And also, is that MAPS Miyaguchi? Please. That would be amazing, right? We were told in that interview that we're going to see back rolls and other types of of heroes come on this team. And MAPS, I think, should not be a row. I think she definitely she has earned that title of Robin, and that's what she wants to be. So let's not change her identity. So that would be amazing to have MAPS be a part of this team. I think we need to settle this team first before we bring new people, but that would be a great mentoring relationship and have, you know, multi-generations. That's super cool. Okay. So... <laughs> For some reason, is it this one? Yeah, my script finally finished decrypting Tutor's background file. OMG, how did it take Babs' system that long to decrypt Tutor's background? Five issues, countless days. Doesn't she have a Cray computer or did she have to downgrade given the move? Uh, that just seems ridiculous that it took that long. So it has the background I told you about in the synopsis, but I think everything makes sense about, you know, the who he is with the art and the psychotic break. All that makes sense, except for his red skull like appearance. I don't know if that's just something over time that the toxin does to you, but it doesn't seem like Crane looks like that or anyone else that I've really seen. So that's the only thing I don't understand. I do wonder why the back roles aren't investigating immediately, in fact, how he escaped Dante's residence, right? They sort of divide and conquer, but they don't even know that they're dividing and conquering because when they're at Ar- Arkham, all of a sudden, Bab says, I'm going to check in on Dante. But I feel like after they received that information, they should have immediately gone to Dante's house and... Inquired and figured out how he escaped and then gone to Arkham. So that was a bit strange for me. I think it didn't really make sense. Dante worked for Arkham. I think we knew that he wasn't on the up and up, but there you go, another reason why. And then, of course, Barbara is going to be the one to check in on him. So as Barbara goes to check in on him, I feel like she should have been just looking at this panel, a door is opened and you're walking in, I mean that just screams red flag for anyone I think. She should have been on way high alert when when this is happening. And I imagine her of good old backroll past dashing into a bush to change into backroll or going somewhere off and changing into backroll and then addressing whatever is going this sinister suspicious situation with with weapons on her person, but she does not. And we also don't know the state of her mobility here because she just, I mean, it looks like a good day for her. She's walking. She was a back girl, but she could have been really tired out from that interaction with the saints. And so here she's, I would say she's pretty vulnerable. I also would say that it's a red flag to me as a reader and as a fan that teenagers are more aware that she needs to be careful and should not be at this place. than Barbara Gordon herself is. So even though I talked about her experience at the first part with the fight of the saints and maybe that turned the tide, this would be a negative towards her experience. Like she's a noob going into the situation. So I don't know what's going on here. And here we go, which is a pretty cool image just with spellbinder i guess opening some doors right behind barbara but she immediately gets knocked out which again why is this happening in this podcast episode where she's getting knocked out by people okay so (laughs) this is of course supposed to be a sinister scene, but I just can't help but chuckle at Grace O'Halloran, brainwashed on top of a roof. And practically still the same Grace O'Halloran, which is really interesting. Now I, Grace O'Halloran, risk life and limb to bring you live footage of Gotham's glorious rebirth. No one can stop our revolution. So just very interesting. Cass up on the roof, sane. I can take them. Good heavens. Who does Cass think she is? (laughs) There are hundreds, question mark, thousands of people there, but she's thinking she's going to take them all, which is really interesting. It is a good sign that there are now listen to the full statement here. It's a good sign that there are is a mass of people outside who are brainwashed, but Steph is inside and she's still okay. And I think that whatever is going on, she would have been brainwashed as well, just given the proximity, especially with Tudor. So I think that I'm hopeful that she's kind of over that and the writers are over putting her through that and making her be the the brainwashed slash weak link, you know, in quotations, one. Tudor got an upgrade, kind of looks like a Mr. Freeze upgrade to me. I guess with this mask, it's just cycling psychotic drugs through him at all times. I feel like this is really appropriate that we have Tudor versus Steph fighting it out because he's been the one manipulating her. She's been the one fighting against him, and he's used her, obviously, to, to go against Cass. So this is like really symbolic of her fighting that brainwashing and finally taking control and owning it. So again, yeah, if Donovan is right that this is her arc, then we're kind of seeing it reach that climax where she's on her own. Cass is elsewhere doing it. She has to do this. Some more narrations. Let's see here. Uh, There was something. This might look like a scene out of a zombie movie to you, but Cass doesn't make that connection because she's never seen one before. Added to the list of things that sucked about the way she was brought up. So (laughs) is Cass missing something by not having seen a zombie film do you think that Cass would watch films to catch up on culture, kind of like Captain America? And I actually texted this to Donovan and said, oh, yeah, absolutely. She probably would have been, you know, definitely Asian films, maybe martial arts films, maybe anime, that kind of stuff. So maybe zombies haven't necessarily been on her list. But is she missing anything? I mean, there are a couple zombie things. Obviously, you know, I like Resident Evil, which is strange to say it's to the style of 10 years ago. But I don't know how much culture I could necessarily get out of watching. A, and it really depends, right? Because The Walking Dead is more about the interactions of people to people and how when culture and the world is in crisis, how do people react in this sort of thing and in and apocalypses and, and stuff like that. But you could get that in a non-zombie situation. So I don't know. I feel like she kind of knows what humanity is like. She's she's seen it, she's grown up with it, so she knows the depths of depravity. <laughs> So I don't know if she necessarily needs to watch it. But in exactly three weeks, Cass will watch, according to the purple boxes, Cass will watch Night of the Living Dead for the first time. So, in fact, they're coming for you, Barbara, will pop up. And I wonder what that will be like when Cass watches it and that scene pops up. Will Barbara Gordon be there? I don't know. Apparently, she's going to love that zombie film. Babs, on the other hand, hates horror movies. You didn't think we forgot about her, did you? Which is interesting because I think in the past, and I'm trying to... I guess it was new 52 right with gail simone i think she loved horror films loved watching this stuff with her brother and i was like what's happening why does she like it this seems more in line i think with what i believe barbara gordon would probably be like in real life that she wouldn't like horror films i think suspense movies or detective stuff noir that kind of but horror I don't think so. I think she just would not be down for that kind of stuff. So this makes sense. And then here we go, right? She's knocked out, in a sense, but it does seem like she is, in fact, susceptible to Spellbinder, which is what I was wondering about because of her Being in proximity with Dante and some of the stuff she was doing, looking up Dante, thinking about Dante, constantly defending that she wasn't with Dante, like, oh, what's going on here? So maybe she is susceptible to Spellbinder or this is just how anyone would react. I hope there are some answers. Next issue is the last one of this particular arc. I will say that her glasses are on her face, but when she falls, her glasses are not on her face. And if you look around on the ground, you can't see the glasses. So where are the glasses? I don't know. So stakes actually exist in this issue, and it's more serious. That was certainly something that Donovan had brought up in his previous email to me. Also, the presence of Babs in a more active capacity and not a den mother i thought was a breath of fresh air though now she's a victim and i guess the girls have to come and save her which i guess this is like a nice little hazing for them to become actual back roles. you saved me I'm not the biggest fan of the cold opening, as I talked about. There are some questions I have about character actions and motivations, which like Barbara going into this house, you know, it's like a horror film. Why are you going in there? Don't do it. Don't do it. Plus, the narration in this issue, I felt, is particularly intrusive. And also, maybe I don't want to know that the saints are going to pop up and be surprised when they do again. So, you know, not as positive an experience as the previous issue, but it's, it's not bad. I, I enjoyed it. So I think I'm going to give this 8 out of 10 missing glasses. Let's go with that. 8 out of 10 missing glasses. Okay. So now, just got the wrap-up. So we have, or I have, woo, anime watch list. I have watched something Thermai Romai Novi, 11 episodes on Netflix lucius modestus an ancient roman architect finds himself job hunting due to having trouble coming up with new ideas as his demeanor and personality become dismal his friends try taking him to a bathhouse for him to relax unable to unwind in the bustling and crowded bath lucius dips his head in the water down there he finds a secret tunnel that transports him to a modern day japanese bathhouse providing him the inspiration he needed to make a new creation I would say that's a bit misleading because not all of the baths have these, these tunnels. It's just like they seem, they go deep, deep, deep. And it's like, he's just transported in time and in space. Loaded with what seems to be knowledge way ahead of his time, Lucius does his best to try and recreate his findings, usually inferior in quality due to his circumstances. However, the sheer ingenuity may be just enough to gain the attention of the citizens and regain his reputation as an architect. It is all about appropriation, cultural appropriation, which is really interesting just having that commentary And it's it's even a meta commentary because Lucius himself, even when people are applauding him, he's like, oh, you know, I've stolen these ideas from other people. What can I do? Can I even say that? So that's really interesting. There's Latin in here, which, of course, the title is Latin. And I will say that even though. I don't see it written out, but I'm listening to it. That it's not good Latin, and I'm very concerned that they're actually using Google Translate. They do a good job of putting verbs at the end, which I appreciate. But there are moments that I'm like, "Oh no!" I, I, there was one that they were saying something like "very beautiful," and they use like "maxime," which means "especially," and then something else. But you could, which I guess you could do that, but just use the superlative adjective. So there are just some weird things that's going on. And even the title, I'm a bit, I'm suspicious of. I wonder if they want to say new Roman baths, but what I'm reading is the baths of new Rome or new baths of Rome, depending on, because Roman is an adjective, which would be Romanus, aum, so it'd be Romanai. Whereas Roma, Roma is a noun unless you're trying to do a partitive genitive, which might work, but I don't know why you would do that here. I I, so I have some criticisms, I would say on it, but it's still fun and lots of butts, lots of butts. I think Dick Grayson would be especially proud of all of the peaches (laughs) okay, I am not wearing anything special so we'll just skip that and we will finish off with my literature recommendations. There are a couple teacher stuff that I did that I don't uh, think I will talk about and school is wrapping up I've as we speak I have two weeks left I think and one for my other class and I'm kind of ahead in it so I'm practically done with that other one. But yeah, I think, yeah, I have a week and then a final exam for my literacy course. So I'll be able to read a bit more. I reread A Walk in the Woods, Rediscovering America on the Appalachian Trail by Bill Bryson. And I recommend checking out required reading in May for Tom and I speaking about that. And we're actually going to do And four episode theme of hikes and traveling and that sort of stuff. So starting with Bill Bryson, I just announced we're going to do Wild by Cheryl Schrade and then two more. And then the 70th, we haven't figured it out yet, but it'll be something about that. Broken Horses by Brandy Carlisle, which is her memoir and, and memoir. And I give that five stars. I highly recommend it. I also highly recommend if you were to choose between book or audiobook, go with the audiobook, read by Brandy Carlisle. And then in between each chapter, she actually plays stripped down acoustic versions of the songs that she's speaking of, or songs coming off of albums that were occurring in, you know, in the chapter the time that she is speaking. And yeah, it, it, that novel spoke to me in a variety of different ways and really liked it out and back a runner story of survival and recovery against all odds by Hillary Allen. And this is, she is a sky runner and they do these intense, like running on mountains, which also involves climbing and all of this stuff. And she fell, literally fell off a mountain. And then it's about her recovery back to that strange adventures by Tom King and Mitch Jarrods, which. Again, five stars and just with Tom King, some of these maxi series like Mr. Miracle in the past, just psychologically deep and and just intense with what's going on. Mrs. Morehard and the Boys, One Mother's Vision, the first boys baseball league, a nation inspired by Ruth Hanford Morehard. And basically it's as that (laughs) title is. And it was good, but I think it made me realize that I... Baseball is not my number one sport, so I just I couldn't get into it. Someone lent it to me, both that and the uh, the runner book. She knows that I'm a runner but yeah i mean give me a a football or soccer book any day and i'll i'll certainly love that and my two teacher books are assessment and student success in a differentiated classroom and instruction a models approach <laughs> so i can say that i read those since i was given chapters all of those chapters as i went through my semester so i think that's it for this episode Remember, you can send any questions or comments to backrolltheoracle at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, or follow it on Twitter at backrolltheoracle. And subscribe to the show on YouTube for an uncut version, which often has errors, but hey, I'm human. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well, and support TBU by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And if I survive my time in New York City with the boys, then you will see me next time. And until then, fly on, bats lovers.
2: Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling daredevil.
1: Ah, I love a happy ending. Don't you?